Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Alexi Guzzi, who's an independent researcher. Alexi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, so uh, Alexi, um, by way of introduction, when you think about the work that, you have, uh, that you've done, wh- what sort of is the thread that ties it together? Wh- what is the question or set of questions that you keep returning to or keep trying to answer in, in, in new ways? What's the thread you keep pulling? Right. So the thread that I keep pulling is trying to figure out how to make institutions of science work better and how to build better scientific institutions. And what are the uh, what are the problems with scientific institutions just at a high level and then we can go deeper? And what are what are some of your proposals if you could wave a wand and change anything about how current scientific institutions are run or how new ones should be built? uh, What would you like to see? Right. I think I'm going to avoid answering this question directly because I, th- I think it's much more difficult question to answer that people usually appreciate. It's I think a lot of people are really dissatisfied with peer review or with the journal system or with how grants work. And well, it seems that these things could work a lot better. I think that people really underappreciate just like how much in detail you need to go in order to understand like what exactly is going on in each of the aspects of the scientific ecosystem. And when I'm trying to, I mean, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what would like the perfect scientific system look like. And I kind of failed to find an answer. I think that probably like the way funding organized and the way publication publication is organized is obviously very important, but also like people who run things Uh, who run the systems of science are important. People who do all of the reviewing are important. Again, every part of the system interacts in a weird way. And what I eventually arrived to is that, like, we should probably just, like, that the best thing we could do to improve the existing institutions is to basically run small experiments and experiment with different ways to fund science and like do our cities on funding, isolated experiments, maybe like have more small organizations that distribute funding and uh, maybe just, yeah, just like try to build small things and, and then see how they grow. And so the, the analogy that I'm, I'm thinking about a lot is that, or other why I'm kind of by default skeptical of big scale reorganizations of everything is that if we think about companies, then like the structure of companies is usually like pretty similar. You have like people uh, who do the work, you have managers, you have managers of managers, you have managers of managers of managers. And if you think about companies that function really well and function really poorly, they like basically have the same structure very often. Maybe they have some small tweaks, but at the end of the day, like the things that really make the fun the companies function well are like really not clearly identifiable. And a lot of this is like individual expertise. A lot of this is like culture of company. But at the end of the day, companies like all companies 
grow bureaucratic and grow old and kind of lose their edge. And you have to like old companies die, new companies arrive and you have this, I guess, an eternal rejuvenation. So when I'm trying to figure out what like the perfect ideal scientific system would be, I'm like, well, I mean, however good the system we're going to design, like without any competition from other systems, it's probably going to grow stale and bureaucratic within like 50 years or a hundred years max. And we're still like, and we're going to try need to figure out how to, how to build it again. So you're less like, you know, uh, calling for, you know, Manhattan uh, projects for different fields and more just making sure that the ecosystem is sufficiently decentralized such that if a bureaucratic, you know, uh, organization emerges, another one can sort of compete with it. Yeah. And uh, specifically, if we think about life sciences funding, which is what I'm most interested in, the vast majority, I'm not actually sure if it's the vast majority, but like the single biggest funding life sciences funding organization in the US is NIH. And I think in 2019, its budget was around 35 or $40 billion. And it's like many, many times larger than the next biggest uh, funding organization. And my guess would be that if it was instead three or four or maybe more organizations that try to compete with each other and try to experiment more with different ways of funding things, then we would probably fund more more interesting research. So I, I want to get at how you know any misunderstandings that people have around the NIH, but also academia more broadly. But before that, you, you look at a lot of institutions and, and you're sort of you're humble about our ability to really determine um, how they work or, or, or whether they're working well or, or why they're not working well. Why do people get wrong when they analyze institutions? What are sort of common things people get wrong when they analyze institutions? I think that uh, I feel like people get wrong most often is, again, caused by like insufficient attention to like detail and how things like really work uh, on the ground. And if you look at NH funding, the age of the first R1 grant, which is the primary NIH grant, is more than 40 years at the moment. And naively, if you uh, see the statistic, it's easy to become like extremely, extremely pessimistic about how funding works. If you're like, first, their own pr- proper independent funding people get is when they're more than 40 years old. And like, this means that before that they have like no ability to do their own research. All of the funding cap- is captured by the olds and the system is uh, completely broken. But then if you like look in, at what's actually going on, then it, it turns out that quite often, even though nominally the the name on the grant is of some like really big established scientist, like the money is really spent by their students and their postdocs and grad students who often work on their own ideas. Sometimes the students like are very involved with writing grants and like the the name of their of their boss is like stamped because it's easier to get a grant. And although like the system is is far from perfect because this essentially like it does mean that there is like very big power symmetry between established scientists and students and like if your group leader is good then they're going like you're 
probably going to have quite a lot of freedom and you're going to work on things that you think are important and you're going to have a really good experience in grad school but or in your postdoc but at the same time if your group leader is not very good then like they can really take advantage of this power asymmetry and like use you basically as uh, really cheap labor for their own projects and yeah and, and as a result the the system again the system can be can probably be significantly better but if you get on the ground it turns out that people do find ways do find ways to like do work that should be done uh, and because of this there is there still is significant distortion of incentives and of what people work on, but this distortion is much less than you would naively think if you just looked at like the numbers and the statistics and like how things are organized. I think this is probably uh, very similar to what you like again happens in companies. If you look at a company of, uh, externally, like looking at comp- at a company externally, you get not that much information about what's really going on internally. And when you uh, start working, like some things turn out to be much better than you thought. Some things turn out to be much worse, but just like reading uh, financials or just by reading like news pieces about a company, you, you, you don't quite know what's really going on. Okay, so uh, I want to name an institution and, and you tell me what people get wrong about it either on either side of, uh, of, of what they underestimate about it, or overestimate about it. And then if you have, uh, you know, one, if you could wave a wand and change any single thing, if, if something comes to you, you know, feel free to mention that too. Let's start with the FDA. I think it's common, common to think that FDA is just terribly, that FDA terribly over-regulates everything and that it makes drug approval really complicated and... It makes, in general, the healthcare system much more complex than and much, yeah, and it makes much more difficult to do things that we should be able to do easily, like, for example, like testing for coronavirus. But I think what is very underappreciated about FDA is that it actually, I think, underregulates in a lot of aspects as well. So, and for example, if we think about clinical trials, they, they're like extremely, extremely expensive and extremely, extremely bureaucratic and could be made much, the, the process of running a clinical trial could be improved quite a lot and probably cheapened quite a lot. And at the same time, FDA manages to have such rules that a lot of drugs that are not very effective or likely not effective at all approved, where you often use like surrogate markers instead of the thing that you really carry in a clinical trial. And if the surrogate markers are much are often much easier to satisfy, then you're going to have a lot of drugs that improve the surrogate markers, but don't improve the thing that you really care about, like life expectancy or quality of life. And in this way, clinical trials are actually underregulated because uh, the companies that develop drugs are able to like essentially get away with getting drugs that probably should not be approved uh, to get them approved. Uh, Academia. I think people really underappreciate how strong the selection for a certain kind of political ability skill there is in academia, because 
one of the things that I think a lot about these days is that academia is like really, really, really hierarchical. And I don't know, when, when I naively think about scientists, I'm like, scientists are people who show that what we knew previously was wrong. But then the, the way academia is structured is that in order to get into grad school, you need to get recommendation letters from professors in your undergrad. Then in order to get into a postdoc, you need recommendation letters from your grad school. In order to get uh, to, to get an assistant professor position, you need recommendation letters. Again, from the previous stage, in order to publish something, you need to pass peer review and to like, get approved by other people in the profession. And essentially at every step, at every step, you need approval of of people above you. And I think, yeah, because of this, like you can't just come in and, and uh, because biology is also really expensive, you can just come in and like do some research or discover something you like in order to get the resources. Again, you need this approval from people who are already doing this research. And because of this, like, Academia really selects for a kind of skill of being able to get an approval from people uh, from people higher than you. And I suspect that this selects out quite a lot of people who are like just not very good at this or who dislike uh, needing to to do this in order to advance. And at the same time, people I think really appreciate like just how many really smart scientists are still, despite all of the flaws of academia, work on really big and important problems and make fundamental contributions to the human knowledge. And the, I mean, the, the number is, is, is large. You, you've written about how it's difficult to evaluate sort of, you know, but one individual level, how, how certain scientists are doing or, or, or evaluate sort of the effectiveness in science uh, on sort of scientists, but also on a macro level, you know, you, you mentioned we may be understating sort of scientific progress or, or, or we don't really have a good, good, good grasp on it. Why is it so hard to, to measure and, and why might we under, be understating scientific progress when, you know, Patrick Olson and Michael Nielsen released their, their piece in the Atlantic? Right. So I think there are, there are, there are a bunch of reasons why it's difficult to measure like how productive a scientist is or how good their output is and probably the biggest reason I feel like is that it's really not clear who the customer is like if you're a scientist the customer could be thought of as other scientists who read your research or it could be the funding ad agency that distributes that distributes the funding, or it could be the taxpayers, or it could be the scientists like five years or ten years into the future who might be underappreciating the things that you're working on right now. And because, like, if you're selling something, it's like always very clear that like if you have customers who are happy then you can be pretty confident that you're actually creating value and in science because you're like you're you're not selling anything directly you're essentially convincing other scientists that the things you do are interesting and important they're really just like 
isn't a good objective way to evaluate the importance of some work. Oh, and yeah, and, and like sometimes, uh, sometimes I think citations work pretty well, and people tend to underappreciate that. And I think that if people are citing your work, then it's probably interesting work that should be that should be funded. But at the same time, it it does happen regularly that people that someone is working on something really important and it just like goes unnoticed for a while and then it's like again really unclear how to how to actually figure out if if something is important or not and yeah i think a good example of that uh, crispr is probably a good example of that so two scientists recently won Nobel Prize for work on CRISPR. And it's clear that their contribution was super important, but they uh, started working on CRISPR in, I think, early 2010s, maybe like, well, maybe in 2010, 2011. And before that, there were actually a bunch of people who also worked on CRISPR, but they were working on like figuring out the very basics of how this mechanism works in bacteria. And back then when they were working in like mid in early and mid 2000s, like, I mean, it's really wasn't, it really wasn't clear that this is going to be applicable at all. They were just like trying to figure out some system, uh, uh, some defense system in some bacteria that, that probably looked like exactly a lot of other like small isolated bacterial systems and only when people worked on it for for a while it became clear that oh it actually has a lot of applications and then people started to appreciate this work but in then the prize went to people who didn't work on this like just like trying to figure out to like what's going on at, at the very basic level but to people who recognized or this is actually really important and we're actually going to figure out how how to apply this. Yeah, if you can uh if you if you could wave your wand and change anything about how academia works or if you could envision, you know, uh, a, a new university or or competitor, what 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 might you like to see? What what's your what's your hope there? Either in, institutionally or existing or, or or for new ones. I think I would try to figure out how to have fewer people being able to veto proposals and to figure out, I mean, funding is limited. I think uh, 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 some people think that we can like figure out how to give, essentially institute UBI for scientists and to enable all scientists to just like work on their own things. I suspect that we really don't have enough money for that and there like there still needs to be some way to allocate funding but my current guess is that because most funding is distributed by committees committees tend to not fund things that are not liked by everyone at the committee and i would guess that most of the interesting proposals are not universally liked and I don't know if it would work, but my from from my reason about venture uh, capitalist firms is that like a single person can very often be the decision maker, and like either it's a scout or if it's a partner, like if it's a bigger investment, like someone can essentially 
be the person who is like, I'm taking responsibility for this uh, to like push through the investment. And you can't really can't do this if you're on NIH committee. Like if someone dislikes the proposal, they're going to not rate it well and it's just not going to get funded. Speaking of funding, you, you wrote this really long piece on, on, on sort of life science funding and, and the state of it. What were some of your findings for, from the piece that were most interesting or most surprising or, or you think most misunderstood that we, that we haven't yet discussed? One of the points that we haven't discussed and that I think is really underappreciated is that, again, it stems from the fact that biology is expensive. And because biology is expensive, universities don't fund their biology research in contrast to like economics or mathematics research. It is funded by external organizations. And what this means is that universities basically only want to hire people who they think are going to raise money for their research. And while it is like semi-tautological statement, at the same time, it what this means is that universities significantly outsource the selection of people who are going to be faculty to NIH and to private foundations. But, and as a result, the, the variance of people who become faculty and who can become faculty, I think is reduced significantly. The thing that I find quite surprising, and I think a lot of scientists find it surprising too, is that academic system is structured so that you only have one lab leader or, well, in science, they're called principal investigators or PIs. And there are very, very, very few labs where you have two PIs. And what this means is that almost all PIs are like solo founders, meaning that they have to, and they're hired by universities individually. And NIH usually only can able to have like one senior PI on a grant. And uh, what this means is that in order to get hired, you need to be good at both finding funding and at hiring people and managing them and enabling them to publish well. And you need to be good, again, at this like sort of a political skill of being able to get hired. And at the same time, because... People who get hired are grad students and postdocs who also, of course, need to be pretty good at research. And as a result, if you are like starting a startup, you can often have a CTO and a CEO, and the CTO can like barely able to talk to people, and CEO can like barely able to understand what's going on on the technical side. And as a result, like people can really complement each other. And to be able to produce much more than they would have been able to produce individually, maybe like individually, it would it would have been a salesperson and a software engineer. But as a team, they're like a, a startup, and you really can't do this in academia if you're just like really good at research, but are really bad at explaining your research and at selling it. Then you're not going to be able to be successful. And at the same time, if the only thing that you can do is like. Uh, sell research, but then you're not actually very good at doing it, you're also not going to be very successful. And I think that we'll lose a lot of value because a lot of the scientists are just like not, not very good socially. And I think academia ends up filtering a lot of them out by just like 
not allowing to find someone who would complement them and support them. I, I want to name a, a, a thinker, uh, and then I want you to tell me where, where you disagree or have different different sort of frameworks. Uh, so first, Tyler Cowen. I mean, th- th- it's probably the, the most difficult person who you could ask me about because Tyler was like literally the person who enabled all of my current work by funding it via Emergent Ventures. And uh, thanks to which I was able to like do uh, talk to scientists and do all of this meta science research. And at the same time, Tyler is like legitimately one of the best thinkers out there. And probably the the only significant thing that I can think of that we disag- that I would disagree with him on is like the quality of economics research. I think that like research like research in a lot of different fields is not very good and my well my background is in economics originally and one of the reasons i left is because i think that like just maybe the majority of economics research is like fatally flawed or meaningless and that we really can't just like read the abstract and then think that the paper finds something meaningful because it the abstract is interesting, and uh, I, I do think that uh, Tyler underappreciates this. And so sometimes he posts, well, he, he posts a lot of really interesting stuff on marginal revolution, but sometimes he posts stuff that I think it would have been worth to like look into the paper and like spend 15 minutes looking into this. And you could probably find something that like, that for, like it's hacking or like doesn't really check out or the things that seem interesting are not really that interesting. Yeah. You, you, you seem to, to do that quite a bit where you, you'll research something like why we sleep, you know, a, a, a book that, um, you know, everyone's talking about and then figure out that it's, it's just a bunch of like, it's, it, it, it's, the research is shoddy. Why, why do you do that? Why, why do you think it's important to do that? Or what sort of motivation is there? So I have several motivations. I, I think that probably the most significant motivation is that I think it's just really important to actually be correct. And uh, this book is not very good on at being correct. And I specifically was induced to look into this because a friend of mine was just like, uh, was telling me that it's a really good book and I should totally read it. And I figured that I really want my friends to be correct. And uh, uh, it, and well, I want to show to my friend that he's incorrect. Uh, and yeah, then, then it turned out that this book is much more popular than I anticipated. But yeah, I think, again, it's like, well, I think there's both like uh, my per- personal origin story where I'm like, I think I'm just like in general, pretty disagreeable person. I think I try to restrain this a lot and like to try to disagree constructively. And like, I hope, well, it seems that people learned from my piece on why we sleep a lot and my well much more accurate information than from the original book and and a bunch of people like people just regularly email me that they read my piece and it like solved their sleep anxiety problems they got after reading the book so I'm very happy about that uh, but like the the natural disagreeableness and like I'm just trying to 
uh, find errors in thinking and like always kind of like running on background uh, whether something I'm reading or whether something I'm hearing makes sense or, or true. And I, I guess the larger philosophical position that I have is that it's not clear to me if doing something when you're wrong is not positive on average. And like there are a lot of ways to be wrong about things and there are comparatively few ways to be right about things. So again, about sleep, you could, yeah, because there are comparatively few ways to be right, it's really worth investing in trying to figure out what uh, like the correct decision is or the correct solution is. And I have this feeling that like a lot of people are like, a lot of people are like contemplative and don't quite take action enough. And I think I'm like naturally closer to that. And a lot of people are like, it's easy for them to take action, but it's like quite difficult for them to stop and reflect and to like, to stop and reflect. And like, it's underappreciated how difficult it is to have like a proper OODA loop of observe, orient, decide and act. And that, it is like quite important to be able to do all four of those things and not just like do the thing that uh, that you're best at although again here it's interesting here comes the uh, the the previous theme where like uh, finding compliment to you and like finding a co-founder and again because it's so difficult to maintain this proper loop it does like pay a lot to find someone who complement, like be able uh, with whom you would be able to complete this loop. I'm going to name the, uh, the, the next three thinkers at, at once. And you could pick any or all of them um, that you have a disagreement with uh, Peter Thiel, Patrick Collison and, and Jose Luis uh, Ricon. I think Peter underappreciates how important 140 symbols in air quotes are so like the reason we're doing this interview is because of the computer technology and like f- for me personally like the, the reason that I'm able to do any of the things that I'm doing right now is this like development of technology like specifically in the last 10 20 years and like it's extremely difficult to imagine what my life would have been if I were born 20 years earlier, I think I would miss all of the things I have right now a ton. And even though like the all, all of this, like, so for example, Zoom right now, I, I, I use Zoom and I, I don't pay anything for it. I use Twitter, I don't pay anything for it. I pay for Gmail like six bucks a month, but the amount of value that they provide is just enormous and life-changing. And if you just look at GDP or CFP, you're going to underappreciate this a lot. With Patrick, I think both Patrick and Jose underappreciate the value of, again, looking at things really, really, really closely. And not just historically, but like diving as close as possible into the scientific organizations or into biology itself and 
tried to figure out like what exactly do we know, what exactly do we not know. And I feel like they're really, really great high-level stinkers. But yeah, sometimes they're less detail-oriented than they could have been. And yeah, and I think this is uh, actually, this is another thing that I think is very interesting. Like I was talking before about how some people are more contemplative and some people take action more and it's difficult to strike the right balance. I feel like a very similar thing is with like the level of thinking someone is comfortable to be in. Like some people are really comfortable at like the details of things. And some people are really comfortable at high level thinking and like theory building. And again, like it's really quite difficult to be at the right level of at the same time, like taking the correct amount of detail into account and not forget to build theory. And while building theory, not to forget about like weird edge cases or counterexamples and like not to accidentally abstract away the important details. Yeah, and, and and it's like I feel like people generally underappreciate that like they're probably off to like being too high level or being too detail oriented. What do you think GDP like people like Tyler or Patrick or other like what do they overvalue about GDP that in, in your mind or like what do what is the right way of thinking about sort of our ability to measure economic growth and or, and what that in, in really tells us about progress and just your thoughts on progress studies more generally. I suspect that over time, GDP diverges more and more from the things that we are really interested in. And like GDP is like about physical production of things. And as I mentioned, it right now doesn't really include all of the free internet services that we have. Well, this is the point that an economist, Dietrich, Walrath makes in that as we become richer, we like naturally care more about having more wealth and care more about, we care less about having more wealth and care more about other things like general well-being and about being in better health and about just like being able to work less while maintaining the same standard of living. And yeah, and because of this, like the undervaluing of uh, things that are like really difficult to measure and that are given away for free, and that were increased material wealth, and so so the specific examples that I'm thinking about are like, for example, music, or that right now you can uh, you can pay like around ten bucks a month and get unlimited access to basically all of the music in the world or like even simpler, you can go to YouTube and listen to virtually every song in, well, not virtually every song in existence, but like to like essentially unlimited selection of songs. And in the past, you like needed to buy like an album for, for this amount of money or probably for more. And it's really not clear to me how you would value this correctly. I suspect that GDP just like, yeah, but we basically have no way of valuing such things. And the other thing that I think about specifically is healthcare. And this was inspired by a blog post by Alex Taberuk, 
And so like, if you think about someone really rich who like is worth billions of dollars today, and they have a child who has some incur- terrible incurable disease, then this person would probably like give away basically all of their wealth in order to have their child cured. But you, you can't really do this. You can just like spend $5 billion and uh, get a cure. People like have tried this and they failed repeatedly. And like for Alzheimer's, for example, we still have like no idea what's going on. And so on the one hand, the person who has $5 billion is just incredibly, incredibly, incredibly rich. At the same time, if you think about someone in 2050 and like in 2050, when like this disease is cured, and it's like included in the standard healthcare package. And you're just like, uh, and if you're middle class or, yeah. And and basically everyone has access to this cure, then on the one hand, like if this person is middle class, on the one hand, they're like clearly still much poorer than this uh, really, than this person who is worth $5 billion in 2020. But on the other hand, they are able to get this thing that this really rich person is unable to get for $5 billion. And like in some way, their net worth or like the ability to get services is much higher than of, of, of this really rich person in 2020. And I, I don't think we have a way to, to value such things. Talk about effective altruism. Uh, talk about wh- where you think they... they... What, what they don't fully appreciate or what, what, what their sort of main philosophy gets wrong or, or, or doesn't encompass in your view? I think the matters I disagree with are very high level. And the first thing is that I just like, I think that consequentialism in general is like bad and effective altruists really underappreciate like dentological ethics and virtue ethics. And again, I think this stems from their like the fact that consequentialism is at the heart of EA. Like they have sort of like the causes that are the most important, and they really want to have people work on things that are most important. And I think that this results in a lot of people who like essentially guilted into working on things that effective altruists think are most important. And I suspect this causes quite a bit of suffering, actually. I have, I, I personally have a few friends who were really into EA and they worked on things that like were most important according to the EA philosophy. And then they were like, a few years down the line, they realize, wait, this is not actually the thing that I'm most interested in. This is not the thing that makes me happy. This is like the thing that other people think is important. And I think this happens a lot. And I think affects like my, my philosophy is much closer to like figuring out what each individual person is most interested in and like figuring out how to enable them to do this thing. And uh, that it's like, really 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 difficult to figure out what like the most important thing is and yeah and we should probably just like try to enable people to do what they personally think is important two questions one is if ea took deontological ethics more seriously what what how would that manifest how how would their behaviors be different or um and then two 
you, you tweeted once that it's uh, sort of like Christianity. And so I'm curious how to, for you to unpack that. I, I mean, this uh, uh, thing about like having the single most, like, like having the proper most important things stems from the fact that EA is consequentialist and uh, not deontological. Like uh, if you have deontological ethics, you're like trying to do the right things in, but like not in a way that would cause the most good, but like simply because, because like, Some, some things are right and some things are wrong inherently. And yeah, and I think if they followed more of this approach, they would be more open to the idea of like agreeing on some basic set of rules that we should all try to follow and then let people do the thing that they're personally best at and most interested in rather than like trying to figure out the single most important thing. And Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the Christianity point is basically essentially the same uh, where, again, because effective altruism is fundamentally consequentialist, they think that some things are inherently more important than other things. And if you are really like by this argument that if some things are more important than other things, then like you are morally obliged to work on the more important things. But if you are, but if you're like, feel morally obliged to work on those things, but are personally just not very interested in them. This, I think, creates a very, a very dangerous dynamic. And I, again, again, I, I feel like qu quite a lot of people in the AA community suffer from this. Uh, Alexei, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. What, what can we, uh, uh, for people who want to go deeper, obviously they check out your blog, but what, what's, what's upcoming? Yeah, so... I'm planning to launch a new project soon called New Science, which is going to serve as a vehicle for my meta science work and by which I hope to both publish more research and to involve more people in doing research and also to figure out ways to enable more people who I think are underappreciated to do science by like finding funding for them or figuring out how to get them in in places where they can do research. Uh, so feel, feel free to check it out. I'm going to be launching it soon. Awesome. Uh, can't wait for that. Alexi, this has been a great episode. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.